Laura Lippman is part of an amazing group of crime writers who debuted in the 1990s and quickly found large and loyal readerships. The novelist was just starting out when I saw her at a Mid-Atlantic Mystery Conference in Philadelphia, where some of the other then-little-known authors were Harlan Coben, Lisa Scottolini, and S.J. Roseanne. It was a new wave that also included Dennis Lehane and E. Childs, and that marked the beginning of a new golden age of crime fiction in which we now find ourselves. Laura's new novel, Dream Girl, upholds her high standards and seems likely to become one of this summer's biggest beach books. Welcome, it's, uh, it's great to have you. We're very honored uh, that you're here to, uh, to speak with us. Um, wanted to talk about your, your new novel, Dream Girl, which Joe and I both very much enjoyed. It's just a terrific book. The story was actually written from the point of view of a, a male main character um, and you've spoken before about not only the challenges, but also the responsibility of writing outside one's own identity to sort of convey how people, you know, will have very different experiences based on their age and race, religion, gender, and, and, and so forth. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your emphasis on writing about characters across a really broad spectrum of society. And we should say that you uh, had a career for 20 years in journalism, I believe, writing for 12 years with the Baltimore Sun. Uh, did that sort of stem from your origins in journalism? I think it begins with my experience as a Baltimorean from the age of six years old. Growing up in a city that was majority black was a different experience than a lot of white people had. And when I became a novelist and wanted to write stories that were very specific to Baltimore, if I only wrote about white people, I wasn't going to be really writing about Baltimore. I mean, there's a way to do it. There are these very narrow stories. There are neighborhoods where you could write with no characters of color, and that would actually be authentic. It's a pretty hyper-segregated city. And every book I write doesn't necessarily tackle subjects of race and class. But if I'm going to be writing about Baltimore, I need to do that. I just need to be open to it. The question of how one does that has been changing and it will continue to change and shift. And I think it is a challenging but important discussion and that people need to take it seriously. And I think Jerry Anderson grew in part from my disappointment in certain contemporaries I heard at conferences dismissing this concern. And they'd say things like, well, you know, I write about a sheriff and I'm not a sheriff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really glib and disingenuous. Mm-hmm. And I know that people are increasingly worried about being canceled, saying the wrong thing in the wrong way of somehow being victimized by what they like to call the woke brigade. But I still think these questions are important. I think they matter. And so having come off of a book in which I had actually taken on 20 plus points of view, had a major character who is a black woman, had tried to be very meta about the idea of, is this wrong? What happens when a white person exploits the, the pain and tragedy of a person of color? Having done that, I wanted to sort of go into a very different frame of mind in which I looked at a man of about my age, um, a, a man who's white as I am, who's had a lot of literary success, often writing from the point of view of women, and 
is really reluctant to engage in this conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, feels besieged. I mean, he's smart enough not to say dumb things. He's smart enough to know better. But in his head, he just feels really aggrieved. Like, why do I have to talk about this? And one thing in particular that enrages him is that his books are being read differently. And people are beginning to pay attention to these themes of female death in his books and how men are sometimes enriched by the death of the women around them. And it just, it all just bothers him and it's nettlesome. And I thought that was a fun, fun conversation to have right now. I, I thought that it would feel pretty timely. It, it actually became more timely than I ever expected. Yeah, right. And also for me, and this is just very individual, I really need to change it up book to book. Mm-hmm. I had published Lady in the Lake. It was historical in the sense that it took place in 1966. It had these huge cast characters. It had a very big, sprawling story, and the stakes were pretty high. Mm-hmm. And it was a successful novel. It did really well um, in terms of sales and, and reviews. It was great. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the obvious thing would be to, like, do another book like that. I can't do that. I have to do something that's as different as possible. So I went from big book, a big sprawling cast, to the most insular, claustrophobic, narrow story that I could imagine. Yeah. I thought it, you mentioned just speaking sort of along those lines. It's been something I'd say you don't, you don't want to turn away from going to from sort of delving into those different types of, uh, you know, uh, what we were saying, a broad spectrum of, of society. But also in, in that book, I had never really heard it, it said this way, but I loved how you said that you try to focus in your work on having a respect for the victim uh, and not just interested in just making it a cheap sensationalist murder or using a victim just as a MacGuffin. Um, and in that particular book, you had said that, you know, there's a story that presents herself as a ghost who's uh, speaking to uh, a character who is interested in investigating this death. And it's, you're, you're, you're more interested in my death and not my life. And it's not the same thing. I thought that was really interesting. I never heard that articulated uh, before. Well, thank you, because I think that's the most important line in the book. And I do think it's something that crime writers need to be cognizant of. And we write crime novels in which these murders, these deaths, these terrible things that happen are there so that the protagonist, the person who solves the crime, is somehow improved or enriched or becomes a better person. I find that really problematic. Mm -hmm. And... You know, something I also struggle with, and boy, am I struggling with it now, is that the crime novel actually politically is pretty conservative because the crime novel posits often that the crime matters because the status quo had been disrupted and by the end of the book, order is restored because we know who did it and some sort of justice has been meted out, not always official justice, not always justice in the courtroom. And I think, you know, when we're, when we're living in the era of Black Lives Matter, we really need to investigate that idea that, that justice should be restored, that, that justice even exists. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's always interesting. I mean, I, I think people should be paying really close attention to the times that we live in and that the work is enriched when people want to engage in these conversations and ideas. Yes. Well, you, you have Jerry talk about the way novels have been changed by movies and television. I, I think that this statement has made changed forever. Do, do you feel that influence of film and TV in your work? Oh, absolutely. If you go back and read 19th century fiction, 
there's just no doubt that you can't write that way anymore. You just can't. People have expectations of a briskness in the storytelling. They can't deal with long expository passages. You know, Moby Dick has a lot of information about feeling. And how would you even do that cinematically? And we have to understand that we exist in a world where people are getting their narratives from, I mean, people are also now getting a lot of information from podcasts. And I'm sorry that someone's trying to call me on this other line. There's nothing I can do about that. Um, Yes, I do think that we simply have to make peace with the fact that cinema exists, podcasts exist, audiobooks exist. All these things are happening. People are fluent in narrative. They're not all good at it. They don't all speak it equally well, but narrative is kind of the human language. Stories are what we all use and tell and I think we have to be aware of that and aware that readers, readers are something we're really vying for right now. Yeah. We really need to create an experience that is unique and satisfying. And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but right. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't just like I love television. I love, mm-hmm. I love movies, but you know, aware of, competition and one that is affecting the way people experience my work. Right. And so do you think when you sit to sort of structure a story, do you, do you think that you and, and writers in general nowadays, because there's so much television and of course film has, has, has been around, but, and it's harder, harder and harder to get people to read, to sit down and spend the hours involved in reading a novel. Do you feel that authors need to almost structure, change their structure and everything and, and, Right. I don't know how to, to say it, but like the literary equivalent of, of something that they'd be viewing on the screen. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's in, what's really interesting to me right now, what I've just noticed in the culture, is that the television shows that get people very, very excited are the TV shows that are screened in the almost old-fashioned sense of it's once a week. You know, people were so engaged in the Middle mm-hmm. East Town, which I happen to not watch. I'm very skeptical of television crime shows that promise that they're going to deliver in a big story way, because yeah. in my experience, they never do. They just don't. Yeah. So, so I don't tend to, I mean, if I'll eventually come back to something and watch it on my own, but I'm not really interested in, in being part of the crowd and playing the guessing game. Yeah. But I think it's so interesting because it's a symbiotic relationship. Television, television in particular, more than film, is trying to learn some things from the novel. It's trying to figure out how to tell a sustained story over 8 to 13 hours. It's trying to figure out how do you keep people going, what happens if they don't see the first two episodes. You know, um, you know what happens if people don't want to, don't like the first two chapters of your book. I think, oh, I think the two, the two forms are actually really informing one another right now. Um, novelists have, be- novels have become very hot properties and a lot of novelists are becoming showrunners, which I think is fascinating. I'm not inclined that way. Yeah. But I think it's great that people like Megan Abbott and Tom Parada want to be in the writer's room. I think that's really cool. And I think TV shows are often better for it. You know, and it seems, Laura, too, that TV or streaming is turning to, you know, books that are quite old. I mean, one of the biggest, most talked about shows 
of recent memory was The Queen's Gambit. And that uh, Walter Travis novel, I believe, was, I don't know, 30 or 40 years old. So it looks like they're reaching out for material in novels. I just saw today, and I was really excited by this because I, I loved this novel, The Pale Blue Eye, which imagines a young Edgar Allan Poe oh, yeah. at West Point. Yeah. It's going to Netflix, and it said yeah. it was a passion project, and the person worked on it for like 10 years, and I thought, oh, that's terrific. That's a terrific idea. It's a terrific novel. And, you know, Absolutely. They, they can get people going back to reading Edgar Allan Poe, you know, newer yeah. people reading that as well. Uh, I mean, um, you know, my work, is, my work is in various stages of play out in Hollywood right now. There's an announced project, which is Lady in the Lake, which has yeah. got a full series pickup out of, you know, out of the gate, and which I'm told, like, look, this is going to be very different from your book, to which I always say, that's great. It should yeah. be. You know, yeah. you should reimagine it. You should think about it differently. You should make it your own. And I'm fine with that. And then there are other projects I'm not allowed to talk about yet, but that are, you know, kind of percolating. And it's always interesting to me. I mean, I have a pretty, have a pretty big treasure chest of intellectual property at this time. It's always interesting to me what people come around and start getting interested in. Right. You know, Laura, one of the fun things for me in reading Dream Girl was the way you sort of play with our memory of, of other classics of suspense. You know, I was thinking during it of Rear Window, you know, the idea of being laid up like that. And then, of course, Misery, where the writer is at the mercy of his caretaker. And I mean, is that something you explicitly wanted to do to explore some of those tropes of suspense? I think that. I think that I know that five years ago when I published Wild Lake with that book, I I took a slight turn in my career and where I'd always been interested in finding big thematic ideas in crimes that really happened using, using real crimes as inspiration, never ripped from the headlines. I I wasn't doing that. I was just really looking at these crimes that have obsessed me and trying to figure out the nature of my own obsession, the ideas that they engendered about sometimes about identity about women's lives. Mm-hmm. And then somehow I found myself thinking about the fact that I'm, I'm such a creature of books. You know, books made me. I'm a very bookish person. Mm-hmm. My mother was a librarian. My dad was a writer. And my sister worked as a bookseller for over 20 years. And I started reading young. And I learned about life from books. It's kind of like this secondhand experience. A lot yeah. of what I knew was what I read in books. This is how people act. I know that because this is what happened in a book. And books were such big influences. And I started thinking about ways in which I wanted to engage with and argue with and rethink books that have been important to me. So I started off with To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. The idea of what if you take, this is sort of at the beginning of when people were beginning to say, look, we must believe women who say they were sexually assaulted. And I asked myself the question of what happens to the story in To Kill a Mockingbird if you insist on that? And I pulled it forward, but not all the way forward to the present. I pulled it forward to the late 70s, early 1980s, set it in sort of an idyllic, very liberal suburb that was proud of its politics and just let it play out. It was like, what happens then? And what happens if in the present day, that past crime becomes relevant again? So having done that, the next book I found myself kind of wrestling with would have been um, The Postman Always Drinks Twice, you know, a book that's beloved to me. And when I wrote Sunburned, it was just like, what if the beautiful stranger is a woman? How does the story change if we flip it? And I was also thinking about Ann Tyler's Ladder of Years. Yes. So when it came to Dream Girl, 
I was obviously thinking about misery, but I wanted it to be urban. I wanted my character to be tantalizingly close to other people, yet still incapable of reaching out to them. And I also wanted to make a major change, which I felt reflected a change I'd seen in the culture. In misery, the, the caretaker initially announces herself to be the writer's number one fan. Mm-hmm. In Dream Girl, the caretaker um, appears to be without any interest in reading whatsoever. Yeah. Is not impressed with caring for a novelist. And yet, it turns out that in Dream Girl, lots of people want to write. They want to write, but they don't want to read, which is actually a really modern thing. <laughs> right. I think more and more. I discourage it. I think it's crazy, but it is happening. But I was also, you know, thinking about a book I love called Zuckerman Unbound, which is about a writer and his obsessive fan and how it goes from being charming to scary. Yeah. And all of that was, was part of the mix. I just, I find myself right now in a period where I was very much engaged with the books that kind of shaped me, books that were important to me, writers who were important to me. The book that I'm working on now doesn't have that. And I don't know what's happening to me right now. I, I know that the book I'm working on right now is inspired by a podcast that got me to think very deeply about a certain kind of news trope, yeah. something that has happened more than once, but always seems to be reported the same way and with the same, mm-hmm. same judgments attached. So I don't, you know, I'm just doing this one book at a time, putting one foot in front of the other and trying to keep it interesting for me because my hope is if I keep it interesting for me, that I hope that means it'll be interesting for readers. Mm-hmm. So, you had mentioned uh, about the forthcoming Lady in the Lake uh, uh, television series um, that, you say it's well, you know, it's going to be different than the book, and that was something that you actually welcomed. Um, is it correct that you, you do have a role as, as an executive producer on that project? Is that right? I do, I do. But will I'm, there be any creative input for you know in that role? Can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, about the role that you'll have in that? I mean, I seek to have as little creative input as possible. I see myself as more of a consultant, mm-hmm. and what I always tell people in Hollywood when they take on one of my works that I'm here if you need me and if you don't need me, that's fine. Mm -hmm. I feel like I exist as someone who's good sounding board. Mm -hmm. There was a moment during the months that led up to this project being announced where, because they were, you know, very hopeful of, you know, casting this high profile star for the part of Cleo, Lupita Nyong'o, that um, they said to me, is there a way to flesh out, the character of Cleo. And I said, oh, it's already, it's, I said, it's all there. It's just in the book, it's concentrated for pacing reasons and for other reasons. But if you actually look at how much information is conveyed about Cleo, it's a huge life. There's mm-hmm. so much to work with there. And I sort of like wrote a long memo about yes. everything we knew about Cleo. And I think that helped, you know, so that's sort of what I do. Now, Laura, you get into the idea of adaptation in Dream Girl, where Jerry talks about the godfather of film being superior to the novel and, and the Peter Straub novel, Ghost Story, having been kind of trashed on film. Do, do you have some favorite and least favorite adaptations of books that you have loved? I don't want to talk about the least favorite because I would hurt some feelings. Of course. I mean, I really would. Um, yeah. But I definitely, I will say that 
the, the adaptations that usually disappoint me the most are actually those that are attempting to be super faithful. Right. And, you know, you know, I'm a huge fan of James Kane and Raymond Chandler was not. Chandler could be quite rude about Kane, but one of the things that Chandler was very shrewd about having written one of the best adaptations of a Kane novel, Double Indemnity, yeah. was that Kane's dialogue doesn't work on the screen. And they made, remade Postman Always Rings Twice with Jessica Lange and Jack Nicholson, and they used great big mammoth, and he used big swaths of Kane's yeah. dialogue, and Chandler was proved right. Um, I mean, one of my favorite adaptations is the film adaptation based on mm-hmm. the orchid thief. I think it's hilarious. I, I mean, I think it's just this amazing example of what you can do when you can't actually figure out how to adapt the work as it is. And you just have to get kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of other adaptations. I really love. I think any writer can relate to sitting in front of the uh, in front of the typewriter and thinking maybe I should get a muffin and some oh coffee before I actually write. You know, that, I'll do that real quick before I get going. The muffin speech and adaptation <laughs> is one of the greatest things ever. About I writing. think anybody who's ever written money. anything can relate to that. We've all we've all done that. I've, I've done. Hey, maybe I'll just do the dishes really quickly and knock that out oh, before yeah. I actually have to write. You know. What about Laura? I- I have a lot of friends that I've argued with for years. And when you talk about Chandler over the long goodbye, the Altman film, you know, and I happen to admire the way it is different, you know, and the way he said it in the seventies. I, I, I think that's an example of taking a big chance, but somehow still being true to the spirit of a piece of work. I love it. I yeah. love it. And I think it works. And, you know, I have a very, thorny relationship with Chandler. I mean, obviously I admire him. He's one of the yeah. greats, but um, I really wrestle with the simple art of murder because in the end, to me, it's Chandler making the case for Chandler. And I think he's really wrong about his assessments of Agatha Christie. And I think it's, is it Sayers that he goes after? I think it's Sayers. Mm-hmm. And I, I, in dream girl, we talk about the idea, you know, that, that, Jerry is one of those people who's going to write a manifesto for, for this is how you write a novel. And then he's going to write that novel that proves his point. And I, that is something we've seen in, in fiction and literary fiction and crime fiction where someone comes along and says, this is the way to do it. But all they're saying is do it the way that I do it. And I, I don't have much patience with that argument. I thought I love the long goodbye. Um, and I know that there are people who can argue well and passionately against it, but to me, it just works. And I'm very fond of it. And I think part of the reason it works, and I feel like, you know, I feel like we're not supposed to talk about this. Chairman plots are not quite as tightly instructed as they should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a certain kind of cavalierness, sort of like, oh, I don't know who did kill the chauffeur. You should know who killed the chauffeur. <laughs> Didn't Howard Hawk say one uh, the, when uh, the one that he did uh, the Chandler and he, and he was yeah. say, he said in some an interviewer asked him said well I don't understand he said to be honest I don't understand it either I have no idea <laughs> I was so excited when I was a reporter um, I was assigned to interview Peter Bogdanovich who was criticizing yeah. who the devil made it yeah and he has it on the record that that really did happen. That Fokker went to Hawks and said, I cannot figure out who killed the chauffeur. And Hawks went to Chandler and Chandler was like, I don't know. And (laughs) I I think that's kind of hilarious. And 
you know, so, you know, but of course we love Chandler. Chandler's amazing. You know, I think part of the reason I struggle with Chandler is because inevitably for a man of his time, he literally really cannot grasp the idea of a female detective. And he has to have his character who's a knight, who's, you know, he's a little bit tarnished, but he's a good man. Um, You know, it just, his vision literally had no room for that, for for there being a female character at the heart of a crime novel. I I don't think he understood a Miss Marple. And, you know, Miss Marple really reflects female lives. You know, the idea of how do we know things? You know, we know things because we're plugged into our communities, because we're paying attention, because we're listening to people, because we know who our neighbors are, and we know what consistent behavior is. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just, you know, Chandler, that, that wasn't part of his vision. Yeah, yeah. Well, Laura, a lot of readers, oh. when, they're, when they're reading books, they tend to think about the, uh, you know, potential casting or how this thing would look or how it do, do you, is that a part of your process at all? Do you ever even, even casting somebody in your head to create a sort of, you know, tangible vision in your head during the process of writing books? Does that happen to you at all? Or is it really just something that stays, you know, almost never, yeah. almost never. Um, there was, there was an actress that I could envision as Tess Monaghan, but inevitably has, has aged out of the role. Right. And so it seems nicer not to mention that. Um, no, I've never, I've never tried to cast my novels. I mean, I'm so, I'm so feet on the ground when it comes to Hollywood. I, I just have a real practical understanding of how it works, of how long the odds are, you know, to get a project from option yeah. to production to being something that everyone's really proud of, that's hard to do. It just is. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that I want to get really attached to. Sure. And again, I just want to sort of hand it off and say, it's yours now. Yeah. Do with it what you will. Yeah, yeah. One last thing, Laura, that was, it's a, it's a thing that's raised in the book by Jerry, you know, and in this media environment where you he does talk a bit about the novel maybe being in danger in the modern culture where we have tablets and television has gotten so much better. I mean, do you, are, are you nervous about the future of the novel? No, no. Um, and it's interesting because, of course, Jerry inhabits a pre-pandemic world and the pandemic yeah. world showed that the novel still has strength. And it's my understanding that younger people are really gravitating toward the novel, that they, they want an experience that doesn't take place on a screen. But I always remember years ago, I interviewed Martin Amos and he mm-hmm. said, I feel that people have been proclaiming the novel dead since Don Quixote. <laughs> and then it right. is the next day sitting up in bed saying, no, no, I'm, I'm okay. I, I just need a little broth and I'll be fine. And I mm-hmm. love that idea. I, I mean, I think, and I, I think that um, the novel suffers when we don't read. The novel requires us to practice focus. And if during the pandemic I had trouble with focus and I became a little jumpy, yeah. but one of the things I found out is that as soon as I started reading again, I was fine. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's something that comes back really, really quickly. But you, you can kind of damage it if you're jumping around on your screen too much and you're going to social media and you're not making yeah. time for it. Yeah. But if you make time for it, it's there and it's, it's a singular pleasure. Um, 
And, you know, I'm reading more poetry. I'm reading some like really dense lyrical writers that mm-hmm. forced me to slow down because I know that's what my brain needs right now. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people and I'm sure you guys could say the same thing. Friends, it was like, well, as soon as the pandemic hit, we all hit Netflix, we all hit social media and all that stuff. But it, when, once we quickly burned out actually on that, we wanted something at a little slower pace. And I have a lot of friends who are like, man, I haven't read a book in 20 years. And I read, you know, <laughs> three a week uh, during yeah. the pandemic. So it, it was, uh, may have been one of the few positive things to come out of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Laura, I want to thank you for taking this time. It's been a real pleasure to catch up with you. I, I, oh, it was so much fun. It I've been a, a fan of yours for a long time, and it's the variety and the quality of what you've done since that first Tess Monaghan book is really pretty spectacular. Yeah, let's see what I can do in the next 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> we'll very much look forward to it, Laura. Thank you. Take, take care, y'all. Thank you. you too. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 